Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we now come to your word to hear it read and to hear it preached. We ask, Father, for your spirit's wisdom and power and blessing so that this word would be preached faithfully, but also that this word would be received by true faith and received as a comfort and a blessing and an encouragement and a drawing unto Jesus Christ in true faith. Jesus is our hope. He is the one who made atonement for us and who has taken all of our shame, all at the cross, in great power and victory over our sin and over the devil, crushing his head and giving us life. Let us receive your wonderful word, this glad with book, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn tonight to Psalm 142. Psalm 142, we're going to consider the entire psalm tonight for the text, beginning at verse 1. With my voice I cry out to the Lord, with my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaints before Him, I tell my trouble before Him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. And thus far the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when Adam and Eve were created, Genesis chapter 2, and we read there the wonderful word that God brings the woman to the man. He calls her bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. They are united in marriage. And then Right at the end of chapter 2 is this little verse that we might not be able to make much sense of or at least quite understand why it's there. It says, and both of them were naked and they were not ashamed. Why tack that on at the end of a creation over which God has said it is very good? Because we learned something about marriage, we learn something there, more importantly, about humanity before God when there was no sin. There's no shame. There's no shame before the Lord, and there's no shame between husband and wife. Everything is open. Everything is honest. Everything is truthful. There's nothing to hide. 
God knows them perfectly as God knows us perfectly, but they also knew God perfectly. And they knew each other perfectly. They knew one another's heart and mind like a couple that's been married for 60 years. They knew each other very deeply. And they were not afraid of being known. They weren't afraid of being exposed because they had nothing to hide from each other. No secrets. No feelings against each other. No jealousy. No conflict. Pure, holy love and relationship. But what happens in chapter 3? In chapter 3, we read, after they have sinned, Another line that maybe is somewhat difficult to understand, but perhaps a little bit easier than in chapter 2. But there in chapter 3 it says, And the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew they were naked, and they hid themselves. The immediate effect of sin is two things. Guilt before God, and shame between husband and wife. Shame between people. They hid themselves. Now their guilt before God is because they have taken and they have taken fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil of which God said they were not to eat. And they're guilty of sin before God in that. The shame, however, exists between the two of them. Guilt and shame are related in the Bible, but they're not the same thing. Guilt is something more of what we would consider within a courtroom. Someone has committed a crime. There is evidence against them. They've broken a very, very distinct law in the garden. God's commandment. They had broken it. The evidence is there. God comes and He looks for them. Adam, where are you? We hid from you. We knew we were naked. Who told you that you were naked? How did you know that? How did you come to this? There's testimony that stands against them. They're guilty before God. But now between each other as husband and wife, there's shame. And that's where shame exists. Not in the courtroom of legality, but in the social courtroom. In the courtroom of public opinion. In the courtroom of what other people think about you or feel about you or how they interact with you. It may be because of sin, but very oftentimes not because of sin, but for other reasons. And I wonder, as I've read about shame and studied the subject for a couple of years actually, one author puts it, says when you start to unmask shame and start to study it and figure out all of its different kinds of intricacies, you start to see it everywhere. And that's kind of true. I start to see it in all kinds of places. And I wonder if there are not several of us or maybe many of us tonight who have experienced shame. Shame like in Psalm 142. No one takes notice of me. There is no refuge that remains to me. No one cares for my soul. That kind of shame. Shame is that deep sense 
of being unacceptable, unloved, unwanted, not belonging. And whether that is in family settings, friendship settings, work, school, church, community. Shame has this sense of being less than human and treated less than human. And maybe even because you're acting less than human. And the reproach of, of shame, it, it sounds like I'm a failure. I'm worthless. I'm useless. I can't do anything right. All I ever do is wrong. I can't measure up. I can't succeed. I won't succeed. I can never be loved. I'm not acceptable. I'm ugly. I'm gross. When I was a teenager, the phrases were, I'm a loser. I suck. I suck at everything. I suck at sports. I suck at music. I suck at life. No one cares for me or my soul. No one notices me. Or maybe tonight, I'm unworthy to come to the table of the Lord. Who am I? I know what my heart looks like. I know what I've done. I know what I haven't done. How could one such as I come into not only the presence of God, but now be welcomed to His table. I think of Mephibosheth lying in front of David, prostrate, expecting the worst. I'm the grandson of Saul. This is where the train ends. This is my last stop. It's going to be off with my head for sure. He even says it to David. What is a dead dog such as I in the presence of the victor, the winner of the contest? And we know what David says. I restore to you all the land of Saul, his property. And not only that, you're going to eat at my table. David puts over Mephibosheth a word of worthiness. Shame bites at us in the other way. You're nothing. You're not important. You don't belong. You don't count. And sometimes this comes through other people. Words of criticism. Criticizing your appearance. The clothes that you wear. The kind of car that you drive. The job that you do. Maybe they criticize your actual work. Not enough. Not fast enough. Not good enough. Not quality enough. Not working hard enough. Pointing out all of your mistakes and all the things you overlook. And not just once or twice, but constantly pounding you. See, you can't get it right. You don't get it right. You didn't get it right there. Why didn't you make that shot in the basketball game or the soccer game? I've seen you make that shot. Why didn't you make that shot? How come you didn't get it? You're playing an instrument. You miss a note. Someone points it out. You missed that note. I heard it. 
You missed it. You messed up. Maybe it's criticism about your actions or your words. Or when you're having a conversation, constantly being interrupted. And the impression that you get is, my opinion is obviously not worth it to that person because they continue to interrupt me and don't let me speak. So you spend years in silence wanting to say something but not sure that you're actually going to be heard or that anybody really cares what you have to say. And in that way, you wonder if anybody really wants to know who you really are. Do you want to hear me speak and express my heart? Do you want to know what my heart is and what's on my heart? Aren't you concerned about the thoughts that run in my mind or the burdens that I have? Sometimes shame comes from other people not because of what they do, but because of what they don't do. Is there anyone here who has come to the point of life where you've really honestly said, you've said it in your heart, you've said it in your mind, I really am worthless and there's really just nothing left. And it wouldn't matter to anybody if I wasn't here tomorrow. Because your cries for help have gone unheeded. Those attempts that you have made, maybe they were feeble, but they were attempts nonetheless. Getting your husband, or your wife, or your friends, just to get their attention. That there's something breaking in you that they won't listen. The person that is supposed to love you doesn't. The people that are supposed to care for you don't seem to care. Those that are supposed to be there beside you, walking along with you in the trials of life are too busy. Or any time you have ever faced rejection in life, Like the boy who musters up all of his courage and strength that he can possibly get to ask that girl to go to prom. He says no. Now, young men, a girl who says no to you to prom is not the worst thing in life. You might feel like it right now. There are harder things in life. But it isn't just that she says no. No. It's how she says no. Almost with a look of disgust on her face. Like she couldn't imagine something worse than going to prom with you. That's what shame is. And that is one of the worst kinds of things in life. To be rejected. To be neglected. To feel as David does here in this psalm. There's no refuge for me. There's no safe place. No safe person. Husbands and wives, because of the fall into sin, were not what Adam and Eve were in Genesis chapter 2, where their marriage was totally one of deep-seated trust and openness with each other. They could tell each other everything. Is that how your marriage is? 
Not when shame is present. I can't tell him that. I'll never hear the end of it. I can't tell her that. She'll never forgive me. I already feel unforgivable. Friendship. Deep friendship. And yet you might even have things in those friendships that you dare not tell the other person. What is it that you want to hide from everybody else? That's the beginning of identifying your shame. Answer that question. Sometimes shame takes us captive because of association. Association. Something shameful in your family. Northwest Iowa is really good at this category of shame, by the way. We have got long memories. And we remember that your great-great-grandfather committed some kind of heinous crime or your great-great-great-grandparents went bankrupt. And the family never got over it because the community never got over it. And hung on to it. Oh, don't trust so-and-so because he comes from a long line of people Sometimes this happens, boys and girls, even when you go to school. If your older brother or sister was maybe not a good student, and then the teachers assume you're the same way. But that's not who you are. And yet we bear the shame of the association. We can bear the association of what church we belong to. What church do you go to? I love answering that. Oh, that one. What do we do with this? How do we bear this? It's not something you did. It's not something you're responsible for. And then there's shame that we simply do bring upon ourselves. Because of things we do. Sinful things that we do. And other things that we do. Sexual sins in particular bring a serious amount of shame. Homosexuality and pornography, their stock and trade is shame. All the transgenderism stuff that's going on, it's it's an industry of shame. And it's industry level shame. But when we as people struggle with these kinds of things, and I mean struggle, wrestle, we know they're sinful, we know they're wrong, there is an inner turmoil within us. We are, Paul in Romans 7, the sin is evil and we don't want to do it. But we feel the temptation, the grip, the pull. And we feel ashamed. And we should feel ashamed about our sin because that's actually guilt which we bring before the Lord. But even in the temptation, even in the feeling, even in the desire, 
we feel the same. Anybody knew about this, they would all turn on me. People who respect me knew the kinds of things that broil in my heart. They would lose all respect for me and I would lose their friendship. What is that thing or those things that you are so desperate to hide from everybody else? Now I ask the question, what are we to do with those things? What does the psalmist do? What does David do in Psalm 142? I'm looking around me, he says, and there isn't a single person here. I look to my right, I look to my left. That's your right and your left. Nobody cares. Nobody notices my soul. He's with all of his soldiers, hiding in the cave from Saul. His life is pursued. Any of these soldiers, they're here to guard me. They're ready to go to battle for me. They don't know what's going on in my heart. And I don't know if they care. I know Saul doesn't, and I know his soldiers don't, and I know Israel doesn't. So he brings his complaint to the Lord. There is a little brief application here. The Bible knows about complaints, brothers and sisters. Where are we to take them? Not to our group of friends over coffee. Not to your sister on the phone. Not to your parents. You take your complaint to the Lord. Take your complaint to the Lord. He hears them. He knows them. He understands them. You see, the Lord is our refuge from our shame. David goes to God. Because the Lord does care for his soul. The Lord takes notice of him. The Lord is his refuge. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Very low. I'm worthless, O Lord, to come to your table. I'm nothing in the eyes of people. I'm not lovable. I'm not acceptable. And God's Word says to you, to all of you, and to all of that shame, you are loved. You are worthy. You do belong. You are beautiful. Your glory in Christ. Christ who took our guilt and our shame at His cross. Through Christ the Lord hears all of our cries and all of our prayers and He knows our hearts. When Jesus came, who did He come to? Sinners. The outcasts. The lepers. The lame. The blind. The deaf. The poor. The People wouldn't go within feet of the lepers for fear of getting contagion. I don't want to get it. That's why they had to go outside the camp. They're unclean. Jesus goes to them. And remarkably more so, Jesus 
touches them. He associates with them. The sinners, the outcasts, the unwanted, the unacceptable ones, and Jesus comes to them in mercy and in compassion to show them the love of God. And His word to you is exactly the same. His compassion for you is exactly the same. He bore the cross for you. You know, boys and girls, part of that whole crucifixion story, the soldiers cast lots for Jesus' clothes. And then we read that that was to fulfill the Scriptures. They would pass lots for his clothing. And you read that? Okay. Was that just so that we could prove the Old Testament was right? No. That's not what that's there for. It's not just to quote the Old Testament and, and here's another piece of evidence of what Jesus did. It's showing his fulfillment. Realize the implications of that when they took Jesus' clothing. When he hung on the cross, he hung naked. Exposed. Nothing anymore that he could possibly hide and nowhere that he could hide. Why? To take our shame. What does God do for Adam and Eve after he speaks to them? He clothes them. Not with fig leaves. That's what they tried to do themselves. Animal skin which means blood was shed and skin was given to clothe them. They wore clothing because of somebody else's something's death. All foreshadowing what Jesus would do. His death to clothe us. That's why that language is so prominent in the New Testament. You go all the way to Revelation 7 and we're going to wear robes of white that are washed white in the blood of the Lamb to cover our shame to cover all of that deep sense of unacceptableness, that deep sense of nothingness, that deep sense of all of your failures and your lack of things and your inadequacies. Jesus covers all of that. As your refuge. As your shelter. As the one with whom you can be open and honest about everything the deepest things that run in your heart and run in your mind. He knows them already. He knew them from before the foundation of the world. And here's the great wonderful piece of it all. He came nonetheless. There's the wonderful two words you read in Ephesians 2 and in Romans 5. But God. But God. We were dead in sins and trespasses. We were enemies of God, but God. He intervened because of the great love with which He loved us. He sent His Son to make us alive together with Jesus Christ by grace you have been saved. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. And like Mephibosheth, we are not only spared, but also welcomed to the table. Cry out to God with all your shame. Cry out to God in that inner 
heart in the deep recesses and pour out your complaint before the Lord. He's your refuge. And He hears you. And He knows you. And He loves you and He cares for you. And He invites you to come and feast at His table and receive His wonderful grace in Jesus Christ. Blood that was shed for you. A body that was given. A death that Jesus died to give you life. Keep you forever. Isaiah 43, God says to his people, Fear not, for I have redeemed you and I have called you by name. You are mine. You belong to your Father in heaven, through Jesus Christ, his Son, now and forevermore. He paid for your guilt. He paid for your sin. And He has covered all your shame. You are clothed, accepted in Christ, righteous in Him, loved of the Father. You belong. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Hear our cries, our calls. Unburden us from our shame. Release us from this terrible affliction and the pressure and the self-loathing. And remind us again that we are loved and purchased at a great cost. The precious blood of Jesus Christ redeemed, washed clean, clothed in the white robes that are washed in the blood of the Lamb. Oh, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. His shame, our glory, His descent into our misery, our redemption, His emptying himself of his glory, our exaltation in the Savior. Help us, Father, as people of God to help others in their shame, to guard the words of our lips, to put to death our critical hearts, to put away the pressure we place on other people and fill us instead with a love that fights against our neglect and a compassion and a mercy for those who are hurting. Let us hear their cries and help us to answer with kindness and therefore build us up together as the body of Jesus Christ. Father, we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our refuge, and the one who has cared for our souls, even Jesus Christ. Amen.